You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. You know, at the Apollo Theater, we've had just about everyone come through there that was worth anything, you know? We've created some tremendous uh, stars, superstars, as a matter of fact. The founder and longtime MC of Amateur Night at the Apollo, Ralph Cooper. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In 1935, a young actor, screenwriter, and dancer had an idea. He started a weekly amateur night competition at the Apollo Theater in New York City's Harlem neighborhood. And before long, Ralph Cooper and his Amateur Night at the Apollo became a major force in black entertainment. Over the next five decades, Cooper's Amateur Night at the Apollo turned hundreds of previously unknown performers into stars. I met Ralph Cooper in 1991 when he wrote a memoir of his many years at the Apollo. So here now from 1991, Ralph Cooper. It's 50 years That's what it is, five generations of great entertainment at the famous Apollo Theater. Why now? Why did you write this book right now? Well, you know, I have been plagued about write a book, write a book, and finally my son got on me, and he, (laughs) you know, he dogged me about writing a book, write a book. I had never written a book before. I've done motion picture scripts, but never a book. So uh, he kept on saying, look, you were always talking about history, and uh, if you don't put it down and mm-hmm. we lose you, uh, this is what he meant, that no one else can uh, come up with this, so you need to put it down. So finally I yielded, and I got into it, and uh, I put it down. Is, so there, is there anybody else in America who has seen as much talent over the years as you have? I doubt that seriously. You're absolutely correct, because... You know, at the Apollo Theater, uh, over five decades, we've had just about everyone come through there that was worth anything, you know? They have been right through there. We've created some tremendous uh, stars, superstars, as a matter of fact. In the world of black entertainment, you just can't find anyone who has not graced the boards of the uh, Apollo Theater. It's almost, uh, you almost have to in order to make it, don't you? Yes, well, the Apollo Theater was, uh, it became the crossover. It gave the opportunity for downtown to see uptown and for the management and uh, so forth. You know, there's always been two kinds of show businesses, but one has been the uh, black show business and the other has been white show business. White show business was very lucrative, it always has been, because they had outlets. They had RKO time, low time, Pantages time, and all that. And the uh, black artist was not subjected to that. He just uh, couldn't make it there. He had that little southern time, you know, where they take two stores, put them together, get a screen, and, uh, hey, this is the theater. You know, you just come on in there and whistle as you walk down the aisle to keep somebody from throwing something out in the aisle to hit you. But uh, from that, you know, there was a lot of dedication and uh, a lot of passionate desire uh, that brought about some great stars. Ethel Waters, for instance, mm-hmm. came from the TOBH. And Bessie Smith, one of the great blues singers. Ma Rainey, who set the pace for blues singers, uh, and all the Smith sisters. They, uh, I call them sisters because mm-hmm. they all, so it seems like every blues singer was named Smith. Mamie Smith, Clara Smith, <laughs> Bessie Smith, you know, it seems like that. You had to be named Smith to be recognized as a blues singer. Otherwise, they said, nah, she can't make it, you know. 
And uh, uh, Butter Beans and Sue and acts like that, you know, that were so uh, really great. These were great acts. But they never had an opportunity until the Apollo Theater came along. And the Apollo Theater gave them the opportunity for that crossover. Now we can sit back and say the Apollo has been uh, responsible for so many wonderful people. You've had the Bells, Gladys Knight, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sarah Vaughan, Ella Fitzgerald in the early days, the very beginning. Uh, and Amateur Night did the thing. Amateur Night was what made the Apollo Theater. If somebody had told you on day one that you'd still be doing it after 50 years, what would you have thought? Oh, no, I would have said, no, that's impossible. You can't, nothing will last 50 years, you know, iron will wear out. <laughs> I would have said, no, 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 it can't be. But it has been, and the amazing thing is, it's stronger today than it was from the very beginning. You know, we had a lot of ups and downs in the uh, very beginning with the theater, not with the amateur night. Mm. The Amateur Night was always a success. It became a success through radio, really, the WMCA. When mm-hmm. we were able to get on WCA, WMCA, we just shot out, and uh, and that did it. That brought all the stars up, you know, mm-hmm. Milton Berle, Jackie uh, Gleason, uh, uh, Eddie Cantor. Uh, Jackie Gleason took your step? Yes, yes. Uh, ja- uh, you know, it's a funny thing. Jackie Gleason is the only one that ever admitted to having taken something from a black artist that I know of, you know. Jackie came and he took my step. You know, his and away we go, that part is his and away we go. But the other part, the step part, was mine. So he admitted to that, you know. He said, listen, I got this from Goop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I couldn't help but think as I'm reading the book, if, if Ralph Cooper wasn't there to do it, would somebody else be doing it? Now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, my son would be doing it now. He's, uh, I'm breaking him into it, you know, Ralph Cooper mm-hmm. II. So he's going to carry the tradition on after I fall out on stage the Apollo. That I'm determined to go until then. As <laughs> soon as I fall out, then he's going to step in and say, come pick up my dad. <laughs> and what, let's go. Was the audience rowdy from the first day? Yeah, first day. First day. You see, they, they think they're so knowledgeable and that they know everything. And they're hip, real hip. They know whether you can sing, whether you can dance, and so forth. And uh, and they're vociferous. They have no qualms about shouting out loud, you know, and they shout. They shout, jump, scream, throw hands up, run up and down the aisle. You know, it's really, it's really something. The audience is a show by itself. You, you know, that's why you have to come to the Apollo to see it. It's hard to write that down, but... Uh, uh, there is an excitement there. Of course, Harlem was exciting in the in the inception of uh, the amateur night. And I've tried to capture that in my book. I have uh, talked about Harlem, the things that happened, the Cotton Club, all the various clubs, the plantations, Zanzibar, Smalls. We had one club after the other there that was uh, truly great. Cotton Club, I would assume, would be the the hallmark. It would be the big club. Interestingly, the Cotton Club was... Totally segregated in the heart of Harlem. No black patronage at all. Black show, black waiters, black help, Chinese kitchen. I don't know how he eased in there, but he got in there, <laughs> Chinese kitchen. And uh, that was it. But the whole audience was white. Now, why it was so tolerated and uh, there was never any fuss about it, the Cotton Club brought the carriage trade to Harlem. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, 
when it closed, everybody by then had thrown their head back four or five times, and they were saying, hey, let's get started. Where do we go? So there was a street called 133rd Street. This was a street. And, Bill, it was a tremendous street. All along the line in the basements, you know, they had that was the famous place for clubs at that time, in the basements. Mm -hmm. And uh, the lights went on at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's when the lights went on, and they had crazy places. The Madhouse, Pods and Jerry, The Nest, you know, Mexico's. It was wild. Now, coming from one end, which was segregated totally, they went to 133rd Street, which was integrated totally, you know. And it, it was just a, a lot of fun, a lot of excitement. And uh, this is what people enjoyed. And this is, was part of the mystique uh, of Harlem, you know, aside from which... Uh, Money rolled in, and with that money rolling in and prohibition, which got the whole thing off to a start, that was the thing that did it for Harlem. It was a great renaissance. Harlem at that time was beautiful. Absolutely a gorgeous, gorgeous place. It was built, you know, for nothing but the rich. Mm. But they mm -hmm. couldn't get the people to come from downtown, uptown, you know, from 14th Street down Nassau, you know, now you, you get on the subway, you come up uh, maybe seven, eight minutes. Then it took a day to get downtown to Nassau Street, you know, where really it was jumping in the, in the days of uh, the gay 90s. It was jumping like, wow. But Harlem is the, the excitement place. Now it's, it's a renaissance coming back since the uh, Apollo has reopened. And the amateur night is the thing that does the trick. Every Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night. After this short break, Ralph Cooper tells about the performer who was run off the stage four times at the Apollo before becoming a superstar. Now back to my 1991 interview with Ralph Cooper. Can you tell when you're in the in the green room beforehand and you meet somebody whose palms are sweaty and they're, they're in the bathroom and doing whatever else they have to do before they get ready? Yeah. Can you tell who's going to make it and who's not? Who's, who's going to be a success and who's going to get swept off stage? Bill, it's the hardest thing in the world. Hardest thing in the world. You know, at auditions, sometimes you hear a person sing and you say, gee, I think they're going to make it. They'll probably be number one, you know? And uh, they wind up at the bottom of the heap or getting run off. <laughs> and I think what happens is... The Apollo seats 1,500 people, and it's a rounded kind of a balcony that is halfway over the orchestra so that you're really looking right down on the stage. It's like you can almost shake hands with somebody. And I think when they walk out on that stage for the first time and they look and see 1,500 people looking at them and the 1,500 people are like saying, okay, let's do it, go ahead on, they get, they get nervous. And when they get nervous, they get out of key or they start wrong ahead of the music. And uh, that's all you have to do. When they do that, the audience starts screaming. And they're vociferous. Believe me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you can hear them. They make no bones about it. You can hear them booing in Chicago. <laughs> but at the same time, I must add that uh, they will cheer you, too. And they'll cheer you loud enough to be heard in Paris, France. So they're really, uh, they're really an audience. It, it, it's a fair audience, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's fair. Yeah, I think it's fair. I, I, 
I consider my audience, you know, my show. They're, they're really, uh, we have a love affair, the audience and I. We just get along together, you know. But uh, they are, they're, they're fair. They're fair. They'll, they'll uh, cheer for you if they like you. And uh, that's it. If you had come along, if, if this 50-year span had come along later in the century, if you'd, if, if, if you'd come along, if this right now, you were just getting it started, getting off the ground, would the Apollo be, be marketed with, with a television cartoon you know, on Saturday morning, uh, T-shirts, lunchboxes, uh, uh, bumper stickers, the whole People magazine articles? Would, there, would, there, would, it, would it be that, that, that slick marketing campaign to go along with it? Well, I don't know whether it would be that slick. Yeah, I, I really don't. I'd like to think it would be, but I don't know. This, this is over a long haul. You know, people that you talk to who are in communications, uh, they are sometimes astounded because they say, well, how could this thing go on like this for this long a period of time and still be successful? You know, we have sellouts every Wednesday night. If you don't get there early... Uh, or get your tickets in advance, you're shut out, you know? Then, uh, and we have nerve enough to have people, uh, scalpers, you know, we have scalpers. <laughs> so uh, it gives you an indication of where, where it is. And, of course, we have people come there from all over the world, all over the whole entire world people come there. The Japanese, uh, predominantly, I say predominantly because every week we have one or two busloads of uh, Japanese who come to the theater. It's about 500,000 of them visit New York every year and uh, um, I guess pretty soon we'll have to have a little section called Japan (laughs) (laughs) would you believe that they got an Apollo theater in uh, Japan really yes sir they have an Apollo theater in Japan and they have adopted the theater in the same manner that we are they even have an amateur night and they have a Japanese Ralph Cooper You like that. <laughs> yeah, they got a Japanese Ralph Cooper over there. Wow. Yes, it's it's uh, quite a thing, you know, quite a thing that they put up the Apollo Theater. How do you keep from getting a swelled head? Oh, well, listen, you, you see so much going on, and uh, you, you try so hard to help these young people get ahead, you know, until you don't have time to uh, get a swell head, you know. You have to stay terra firma on the ground and, uh, and go from that point of view because uh, your help and your encouragement is, is great, you know. And we've had people that are so deserving that, that made it, and then we have a lot of people that, are, uh, that didn't make it who I think uh, could have made it. Then we have some that finished up in the second and third categories that went on to stardom. And we had some that, run off, that were run off. Who went? Luther Vandross was run off four times. Four times. I mean, you'd say that to somebody today and they look at you. They say, you know, the guy's a little off. You know, he's been doing this too long. You know, he's imagining things. Four times he was run off. The fifth time he came back, Bill, he just picked the audience up, put it in his pocket, and walked on out and did the thing. I'd like to talk about Luther because uh, I think it's an incentive. Mm-hmm. You know, it helps uh, people to say, well, man, if he could do it, you know, maybe I could do the same thing. And they can. We've had so many people that have uh, had that perseverance, you know, and that dedication, but he's a hallmark. There's no question about it. Then others walk in and take the audience by storm. You know, we just, we introduced the new kids on the block, mm-hmm. and uh, they were one of the acts that walked in and took them right off the bat, right off the bat. They did. They, they by the time uh, he got 
halfway through his song, the lead, they were screaming, sing it, baby. (laughs) Do your thing. And that's the way uh, that's the way they are. They they're they're, they're very vociferous and they say what they want to say. They come out with it, you know, and, and encourage. Yeah, it's an encouragement. Performers are wonderful people because today you find there's no segregation. Either you can or you can't. You're a singer or you're not a singer. And it's just that simple. But uh, there, there is no segregation today. And the segregation before was just the segregation of people generally. It wasn't a segregation necessarily of uh, the uh, artist themselves, you know, mm-hmm. because many of the white artists copied the black artists in, in Toto, you know. I was talking to Sandy coming here, and I was saying about uh, Al Jolson, for instance, mm-hmm. who, you know, was considered to be the great entertainer of his uh, time. And he, you know, was black face, big lips, mm-hmm. nappy wig, white gloves, and, you know, was that kind of thing. And the black performer, I mean, who had originated that, was beginning to lose it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it was, it's, it's oh, so many things in the book that people mm-hmm. really enjoy. Ralph Cooper died in 1992 at the age of 84. And you can find easy Amazon links to Ralph Cooper's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview with Gladys Knight. We came across this song and it said Midnight Plane to Houston. We said, hmm, we like the way the storyline goes. So we came up with Midnight Train to Georgia. That sounds better. And my conversation with Martha Reeves. We were in love with one another. We sang songs and crooned to one another and just fell in love. There are a lot of children walking around today that I consider Motown babies because we sang about love. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And you can find all of our previous episodes at our website, heardeverything.com. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a man whose performance in the 1954 World Series, 67 years ago this week, became a legend. My 1988 interview with the great Willie Mays. I didn't want to be just a ball player. I didn't want to be just a, a guy every day go out and do the same thing other guys did. I tried to create things. One of those was the hat, the basket catch. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.